Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, will you turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 9? And this morning, the, the teaching theme that we looked at really for the last two chapters, but especially in chapter 8, it continues. Namely, that our superior Savior, Jesus Christ, he is better than the Old Testament high priests. Um, the new covenant we learned about last week, that new covenant that God made with us through Jesus Christ, it is much better than the old. And, and even our worship of him as Jesus followers, it's better than the worship that was participated in by God's people under that old covenant. And that's important because like everything else in this entire universe, you and I were created to worship. And since for those of us who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, those of us who are redeemed by his blood, since we have been recreated to worship, it's vitally important that we know the wise and the house of God's expectation of our worship of him under the new covenant. And God's going to teach us this as we study this passage together this morning. We already read it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we do that. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, who's present here, would illuminate the truth of your word to us. Reveal yourself to us, who you are, what your expectations of us are, so that we can worship you as we should, as you want us to. We are so thankful for our superior high priest, Jesus Christ, our superior Savior. We're thankful for the superior covenant that we learned about last week. Um, and Lord, we're even thankful for the superior worship that we're able to participate in because of all that Christ has done for us, because he made a way to reconcile us to relationship with you. Show us that way. If there's one here who has yet to trust in Christ as Savior, maybe has never heard of the way and the truth and the life, I pray that this morning, in this service, or in the next, or as they might be watching on live stream, that they would trust in Christ as Savior. For us who have, Lord, I pray that we would live in the gospel power that Jesus bought for us, that we would recognize that we have the power over sin. It no longer has dominion over us. Lord, that we could live a transformed life. Not so that you'll love us, but because you love us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 to 10 talk about worship under the old covenant. And it begins... Uh, really describing the contents of the tabernacle. Verse 1 begins to describe the worship of God in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. It says, Verily, or truly, this first covenant had ordinances of divine service. There was worship that went on in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. And verse 1 describes that this worship primarily took place 
in a worldly sanctuary, it says. Now, that adjective, worldly, it isn't describing Old Testament worship under the Old Covenant as worldly in a sinful sense. Um, it's very important that we understand that there's no, there's no derogatory comments or statements made in the entire book of Hebrews whatsoever concerning about all that went on back then. That's because God designed it, and God commanded them to do what they did, to worship as they did. Uh, God set up that system. And the only potential negative thing that has been said about it or will be, and it's really not negative at all, is that the old is old, <laughs> And then it's been replaced by the reality that it pictured. It's done what it was intended to do. But it's not to be continued because the New Testament reality that it pictured has now come to be. And that's for us. And then verse 2, it begins to describe Old Testament worship under the Old Covenant by listing out some of its visibly noticeable features. It says a, a tabernacle was made, and in its first room, there was a candlestick and a table and showbread that would be set on that table. And so to help you get a picture of what God is describing here in these opening verses of chapter 9, the Old Testament tabernacle and and the temple, which was a more permanent fixture that replaced it later on, it it had different sections. Uh, Before we even get into it, there was an outer court. There was an outer court all around it in both of those situations, the the, uh, tabernacle and the temple. And um, the, the tabernacle itself was a long, rectangular-shaped tent. It was made out of badger skins. And only, only the priests from the Israelite tribe of Levi were allowed to go into that first section of the tent. All the rest of God's people had to remain on the outside. Um, inside that first section, uh, it was called the holy place. That's what's being described in verse 2 here. On the south side, of that first section was a seven-lamped candlestick that provided light. On the north side was a table made of acacia wood covered in gold, where every Sabbath day the priest would set 12 loaves of bread on it. And then verse 3, it takes us further into the tabernacle. There's another section. It's separated from the first section by another veil and curtain. 15 foot high, this section. 15 foot wide, 15 foot long. This section called the Holy of Holies, or as verse 3 puts it, the holiest of all. And right outside of this special intersection, uh, at the entrance to the Holy of Holies, verse 4 says there was a golden censer. The King James says censer. A better translation would be altar. And, And see, before the high priest would enter that Holy of Holies, the holiest of all, he would put incense uh, onto the coals of that altar. And this entry into the Holy of Holies by the high priest, it could only occur once a year and only by him. And that's because of what was inside this special second section, the Ark of the Covenant, and what was above the Ark of the Covenant, even more importantly. The presence, the glory of God rested there. Verses 4 and 5, it describes its appearance and its contents. The ark was overlaid in gold. I know your imagery is probably from Indiana Jones, right? And Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's nothing wrong with that. It's probably very similar. Overlaid in gold. Inside of it was a pot that held the manna that God provided as he brought his people through the wilderness. Inside also was the rod, the staff of Aaron that miraculously budded its sprout to life, an old wooden pole. 
Some of you might use a cane or a hiking staff when you go out. Can you imagine if all of a sudden that thing grew branches and buds and leaves? That's what happened back then. Um, also inside were the two tablets that contained the law, the, the Ten Commandments, and uh, those that were inscribed by the very finger of God himself. Now on top of the ark, on, on its lid that was overlaid in gold, there were angelic figures, what we call them cherubims. And uh, above these angelic figures, that's the place that God's glory would rest, his, his literal presence Thus the reason only the high priest could enter, and only once a year, and only after he had done exactly as God told him to do. And between these angelic figures, verses 4 and 5 describe the mercy seat, the area in the center. Uh, description of the contents of the tabernacle, it comes to an abrupt end in verse 5. I like how God puts it, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Why not? Well, he wants to move on. Well, they might not be able to, God might not be able to, but, but we can and we should and we will this morning give a little more detail in just a moment. Uh, but first, verse 6, it tells us that only the priests could enter this first section of the tabernacle. God's people had to stay outside in the outer court. And then only the high priest could enter the second section. And, it, and the priests, when they went into the tabernacle in the temple, verse 6 says that there they would accomplish the service of God. All God's people were on the outside. See, their worship was limited. It was primarily undertaken by the priests for them. If we look at verse 7, it says, But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, and for the errors of the people. And um, once, a, once a year, he alone would go in. On, on the Day of Atonement, he would enter with the blood that was sacrificed from the sacrificial animals, and he would sprinkle that blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant on that area known as the mercy seat. We're going to look at verses uh, 12 and, and 13 later this morning, but it speaks of the blood of goats and calves and bulls and goats, and both were necessary. A bull would be sacrificed, and, and its blood offered for the sins of the priest, and, and a goat would be sacrificed, and its blood offered for the sins of of God's people. Now, now, verse 8, it's a key verse here. It says, The Holy Ghost, this signifying, so the Holy Spirit, who, who inspires the Word of God, who, who included all of these Old Testament commandments that God is referencing here in the New Testament in this passage, he, he gave all of this to us to signify or to show us that the way into the holiest of all, it says, was not yet made manifest. It was not yet made completely known. So basically, all of this that we have learned this morning has this as its point, that our sin has caused a significant separation, a separation between us and God. And innocent blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sin and to satisfy the righteous wrath of God for the rebellion against him that my sin and your sin is. If you look at verse 9, God tells us there that, that this was a figure. The Greek uh, word here also is translated parable in the New Testament, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, as we've learned about since Melchizedek in the last two chapters and even last week. These are types. They're Old Testament pictures of, of a New Testament reality. All of this was a, a figure. The tabernacle, the furniture, the ritualistic worship, the gifts and sacrifices that were offered. And then verse 9 ends with this sad statement. 
It could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Man, that is a lot to go through, isn't it? On a daily basis, on an annual basis, a lot to go through uh, when the result is an actual inability to save completely. Daily sacrifices, the, the main one described here annually, and, and all of it, all of it could never completely or totally remove the sins of the priests or the people that they offered the sacrifices for. And there was an external temporal cleansing that talks about that in this passage, but it would need to be done again. So all of this was imperfect in, in, in internally cleansing the worshiper's conscience and reconciling them to relationship with God. See, there'd be another day of atonement next year and another the year after that. And so all of, it, all of this a constant reminder of the seriousness of sin and the separation from God that our sin caused. Verse 10 says, Which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them, I love these last few words, until the time of reformation. So this whole Old Testament, Old Covenant system, what we're told here in these first 10 verses is that it was ineffectual in bringing its people to perfection. It served only a temporary, a temporary function. It would point them to faith and the promise of one who was coming whose sacrifice would replace all of this and finally take care of our greatest need. One who was coming who would actually reconcile us to relationship with God, a time of reformation, as the end of verse 10 says. So let's look at the communication of everything that we just described, the contents of the tabernacle. Like, what are they there for? What did they communicate, these types? In verse 8, called it the Holy Spirit's signifying or showing us. Verse 9, called this all a figure. Um, and while this Old Testament, Old Covenant worship, while it, it was ineffectual, uh, it did have a point. It pointed the people performing it to God's coming promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. You understand that all of these contents in the tabernacle and all of the Old Testament, Old Covenant worship, all of them, all of them were types, Old Testament pictures of a New Testament reality. And so let's quickly go through what was listed here because God draws our attention to certain things in this passage here in Hebrews 9. For instance, the, the tabernacle itself and later the temple in Jerusalem. What, what did it represent? Who was there? God was there, the presence. Yes, the presence of God. In literal presence of God over the Ark of the Covenant. And what is God's word tell us is a name for Jesus Christ that we especially think about at Christmas? Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us. God present with us. Do you see how it was a type pointing? But what about that candlestick? John 1, 9 says that Jesus is a true light, which gives light to every man that comes into the world. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He that follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What about the pot of manna and the table of showbread? Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. John 6, 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What about that altar of incense right before you go into the Holy of Holies where the priests would offer incense on those burning coals? Throughout Scripture, incense always has a, a picture of being the prayers of the saints. And whose name are we to offer our prayers in? Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said in John 14, 13 and 14, whatever you will ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And now as we enter that, that second section, we go into the Holy of Holies. There's the ark. And on the top cover, the mercy seat, where forgiveness of sin, atonement for sin is pictured as the priest would apply the blood from the sacrificial animal. God's wrath would be satisfied at least for another year. And whose blood would be sacrificed for our sins in our place? Jesus, right? The Greek word translated here in Hebrews 9, 5 as, as mercy seat is hilasterion and is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as propitiation. Kind of a funny word we don't use often, but a beautiful word because it means a sin offering by which the wrath of God is appeased. That same word is used in the gospel explanation of Romans 3, 21 to 25, where God has Paul say, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, being justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith. See, it was God's intent, it was God's design in all of these types that his Old Testament and Old Covenant people would, in faith, see what the Holy Spirit was signifying, as it says here. That they would see these types, these figures, these parables, these Old Testament pictures of a New Testament reality that was coming. Many of them did not. Do you see it? Well, we, we have better. Um, we have the Monday morning quarterback view here. Uh, we've had the substance, so we can understand how the shadow applies to it. We have the reality, so we can understand what was being pictured. And God's revealing it to us here in Hebrews. Now let's look at worship under the new covenant, verses 11 to 13. The very first thing it tells us about worship now is that we have purified bodies. As we learned last week, um, all of that Old Testament, Old Covenant stuff, that is all over. And aren't you glad that it is? Yes. Daily, bloody, guilt-ridden reminders that, that all, it was imperfect in clearing our conscience and actually reconciling us to relationship with God. Uh, we have a new covenant because we have a new way. We have a new way to worship, and I'm so glad that we do, that, that by faith in God's grace to you and I in Jesus Christ, that we have unlimited access to God, that we have relationship with God because we have the substance, not the shadow. I, pray, I praise God that I can praise God and that you can praise God in person like we are doing right now, this morning, that, that under the new covenant and in Jesus Christ, you and I can worship him. We don't have to stand outside the walls of these church in the outer court and have someone else do it for us. That, that as Hebrews 4.16 commands us, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and find grace in our time of need. And I thank God for the first two words of verse 11. But Christ. There's a new thing coming here. That's what it's telling us. But Christ. But because of Christ, who came as my better high priest, and who serves in a better heavenly sanctuary, you and I can follow him into access to God. Reconciliation to, to relationship. That's what verse 12 describes. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. As Jesus hung on the cross and bled and died for my sin, for your sin, 
He uttered his last words. We've mentioned them the last few weeks. What did he say? It is finished. It's finished. And as we learned in our study together in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 15, 38, says as soon as Jesus uttered those words, what happened to that veil that we've learned about this morning? It was torn in two, right, from top to bottom. That 15-foot high curtain, thick curtain, was torn in two. Now, who did that? Somebody on stilts? No. God the Father did that because of what Jesus Christ had just done, because redemption had been accomplished. Relationship was now available. You didn't have to send a high priest in there anymore once a year. You can go, and I can go. Jesus made a way. He made a way to reconcile relationship with God. In verses 12 and 13, it says, A blood of goats and calves and bulls and goats. They may have externally and, and temporarily purified those under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, but Jesus he obtained an eternal redemption for us. You don't have to go in year after year. His death paid the price I owed. His substitutionary sacrifice for me and for you in my place. The salvation we have in Christ is by God. It's from God, a salvation from God. It's a salvation for God. You understand that by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that his blood purifies our bodies when we believe. God's word says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that, that when I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, when I was born again, that God purified me. It says there, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation, right? A new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all, all part of things? No, all things have become new. And so what does New Testament, New Covenant worship look like? Well, God, as Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, after an 11-chapter-long 11 11 explanation of the gospel, and you know these verses well, God says, I plead with you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, since you have trusted in Christ the Savior, you have obeyed the gospel by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. That's your reasonable service. Be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world so you can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. New Testament, new covenant worship by those redeemed by the blood of Christ. It looks like Romans 6.13 where it says, Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Present your whole selves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Because you're not under the law anymore. You're under grace. 1 John 3, 3. We're told there as we await Christ's return, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. This isn't how we are saved. You understand that, right? But it's what we do because. Because we are saved. It is our worship. This is how we're to worship with purified bodies that he's given us. It's our worship under the new covenant of grace. And, and in worship, we have something that is uh, different, that, that no one under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant had. We have a purged conscience. Verse 14. If the blood of bulls and goats, from verse 13, if it sanctified to the purifying of flesh, and it did back then, externally, temper, it have to be done next year, but it did. Well, then how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how, how much more will it purge your conscience from dead works 
to serve the living God. What a great picture of the proof of the Trinity right here. Now, this is like a side note. That's not the main thrust or force of this passage. But if anybody comes to you and says, it doesn't even, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Well, it's not, but it's right here, isn't it? All three. <laughs> um, you have God the Son who offered himself, the blood of Christ. How did he offer himself? Through the eternal spirit. And who did he offer himself to? God. All three persons of the Trinity right there. Uh, they're all three, their involvement in our salvation right here in verse 14. And, and what did that do? Jesus offering of his blood for us, the sacrifice of himself for us. What, what does it do? And what does our faith in it do? It says right here, it purges our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Not what we do, but what Jesus did. That's what's described for us here. Do you understand that when, when we by faith receive Jesus as our Savior, that we have a purified body and we have a purged conscience that reconciles us to a personal relationship with God the Father, and, and it enables, it empowers us to serve him and to obey him and do his will, not, not in dead works, like in the Old Testament and the, the Old Covenant, but in a faith that, that's alive, New covenant service to God and worship of God, it's no longer out of ritualistic duty. Well, this is what we got to do. It's that time of year again. No, it's from redeemed delight. Grace-powered righteousness. Faith-powered worship. All because we are new creations with purified bodies. Do we still fight sin? Yep, I do. Daily. Are you fighting it? That's a mark of a Christian, that there's a fight. Before you knew Jesus, there probably wasn't much of a fight, at least not for the right reason. We still fight sin. But, but because of our union by faith with Christ's death and resurrection, we can and we must, as Romans 6 says, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. What he's telling us there is that sin no longer has dominion. It doesn't have the dominion over you that it had before you came to Christ, since you have been redeemed. It's still there, but not with the power that it had before you were saved. And that's the gospel promise of God here, purified bodies. And also all because we are new creations with purged consciences. Do you understand that when you receive Jesus as your Savior, you were given his record of righteousness? Think on that for a moment. Man, we need to think on that for a moment. When you trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you were justified the very moment. Your, your record of sin is probably pretty long. Mine is. Jesus took it on the cross. I don't have that anymore. I have his. <laughs> I have his perfect record of righteousness. That's what the gospel gives us. So when God looks at me and when God looks at you, as amazing as this is, almost incomprehensible, he doesn't see me and all the sins I did yesterday and all the sins I did 10 years ago and four years ago or when I was four years old. My mom says I was a naughty little bugger. He doesn't see them. You know what he sees? He looks at me and he sees Jesus Christ. That is the amazing truth of the gospel. That's the good news, isn't it? Man, that's good news. 
because I got a long list. Not anymore. Not anymore. And that is why we can sing as we did. I was going to have Tommy maybe do it another time. That last verse, the whole song is good, all right? But that fourth verse, no guilt in life. <laughs> we don't live in that like we ought to because we don't understand this truth. We don't apply it to our lives. No guilt in life and no fear in death because of no guilt in life. This is the power of Christ in me. And if we're not living powerfully, it's probably because we really aren't understanding or appropriating what we just said in that first part. No guilt in life. So I can have no fear in death. That's the power of Christ in me. That's the power of the gospel. Have you ever recognized your sinfulness and your need of a Savior from it? Can you look back to a, a time in your life when you recognized you were a sinner and you trusted in what Jesus did for you to save you from your sins, to make you into a new creation with a purified body? and a purged conscience. So you can serve and worship God. If you've never done that, do it right now. Dr. Jerry Vines, a long time Southern Baptist pastor, was having evangelistic meetings at his church, and he talked about how there was one young man there who the Holy Spirit was working on. He needed to get saved. The young man testified that he felt like God was telling him, hey, you need to go Get this settled now. You need to go forward. Talk to the pastor. Give your life to Christ. Trust in Jesus as Savior. He held onto that pew, and finally the invitation song ended, and he bolted out of the church and headed home. Couldn't get there. The whole way he was driving, the Holy Spirit kept working on his life, saying, get it done today, and he turned around eventually. About half an hour later, he pulled up one, one or two cars in the parking lot of the church, he walked in, the evangelist was packing his stuff up, getting ready to go, and he said, I should have done it. God was working on me. I'm, I'm sorry, but, but I'm here now. And the evangelist said, you're too late. He said, what? He said, what, what do I need to do to be saved? He said, you're too late. He said, I can't be, not from what you said. He said, you don't understand. You're about 2,000 years too late regarding what you can do because it's been done. It's been done. You just need to believe in what Jesus did for you. What about you, Christian? Are you laden with some sin? Or I think the worst part of it is the accompanying guilt, and you're allowing that to just wreak havoc in your life. That sin has no power over you, Christian. That guilt has no power over you unless you let it and you welcome it. So leave that sin. Leave it this, this morning. Gospel living. Here's, here's such a great, it's an old Puritan guy. I don't know, Daniel, some guy with a wig. But uh, he, said, he said this. We don't kill sin so that God will love us. We don't live in righteousness and holiness so that God will love us. We do it because, because he loves us. Christian, leave that guilt at the cross of Christ this morning. Your better high priest, Jesus Christ, he took care of it. He took care of it. And as Tommy comes, uh, if God's moving you through confession, repentance, and forgiveness of sin that he offers us in Christ, however the Holy Spirit uses the word of God this morning to call you to respond, I just ask that you would obey him.